You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Gerald Stevens of, well, man, I've always said Aranis, but I'm not sure if that's right. Um, Aranis is as good as I can get. Um, you know, I've said Aranese, and then I found out, no, oh, it's probably Aranis, or is it Aranis, or um, it, you know, it's ancient Greek, so I don't think there are that many people that'll get upset with you, except that there are Greek people that sp- still speak the language, and maybe they can correct me. Uh, may- maybe someone will reach out. That'd be nice. Well, how did you come to that name? I did a radio show on WUSB on Long Island during grad school. Uh, and my um, co-host was, um, he chose the name DJ Circuit. And people were choosing silly-ass DJ names left and right, right? Oh, that I'm DJ this. sounds like a mid-90s uh-huh, DJ, absolutely. like DJ yeah. Circuit. is mm-hmm. like, you couldn't get more mid-90s name than that. <laughs> it, it's pretty beautiful, right? So- so I, th- I thought that all the DJ names were kind of cheesy. And I said, okay, then I'm going to name myself DJ Nick Fury. Name myself after a comic book character that no one had heard of in the mid nineties, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this was long before Marvel was, uh, Marvel movies had picked up, right? So, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the funny thing is people really, they had no idea that it was a comic book character. I spelled it slightly different. Um, I spelled it Nikolaus, like N-I-K. Um, not that that matters, but, um, uh, and people really thought my name was Nick for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so Nick Fury, um, when I, um, the, my original cassettes were all under Nicholas, F- Nicholas Fury or Nicholas Von Fury. I put a Von in there too. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, so, um, I sent them off and when, when it, um, when I finally got, um, some interest in them. Uh, actually, I, I think it was Joachim from Tesco that said, ah, I don't know if I like the name so much. And he said, I don't remember what he thought it sounded like. Maybe he thought it sounded like a comic book hero, right? Right, right. Um, <laughs> and so I just, uh, I, I I thought about it a little bit. And well, the Greek Furies, right? Yeah. yeah uh, Aranis, the Greek Furies. Um, and there are three of them. And, and, uh, and maybe I can remember their names on a good day. Uh, and so I just, I, I morphed over to Aranis and, and that's actually how I got the, the name. And I've still stuck with it a little bit. When I was doing the radio show, we were, we were talking once and I moved away from the microphone and he, he said, Oh, uh, um, uh, can't hear you. Um, old, uh, did he call me old man? Um, I think he said old man. And I said, yep, yeah, old man fury. So old, you can barely hear him. And, and then that kind of stuck as my, my other pseudonym and I still use it on, uh, my Instagram and such as old man fury. And then various other things were fury related. So that's, that's kind of the, where that came from. Well, including your label, which I mean, calling it that, uh, sounds a little strange as you have <laughs> on record one, one release, the monofidelic three inch, right. But furious recording technologies. Yeah. Yeah. And furious mm-hmm. recording technologies was me being cheeky. Because, I mean, calling it a label, exactly. It wasn't really a label. It was self-pressed. But I also did other things under that. I put up a nice web page on how to make contact microphones, which I think you're familiar with, possibly, you saw it back in the day. Yes. That's where I learned how to make a contact microphone. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly uh, this CD and the field recording nature of it. Well, you know, your, your CD on Tesco that we're referencing here and your website and just the sort of networking at the time is one of the reasons I really wanted to speak with you. And yeah, you, you taught me inadvertently how to make a contact microphone out of cheap radio shack parts. Yeah. Which is exactly what I was hoping to do. Um, do you remember? So the, um, I think it was on alt.noise. There were many threads. People would ask uh, every, every other month they would say, how do I make a contact microphone? Where do I buy a contact microphone? Uh, and, and, you know, noise people aren't always the most friendly, uh, a bunch of them were, but a bunch of them were, um, kind of, wait, we don't want everyone to know our secrets. And so there was kind of some secrecy about it and, and people were not being helpful. And, and I, I thought that was really odd, especially because you can make a contact microphone from cheap Radio Shack parts. Uh, I had made one in grad school and I hooked it up to my, my string bass and, and I would record that. I put them on my uh, 53 Chevy's engine block and recorded that. And um, and they're just great fun, right? Uh, and there's no, they're not complicated. I mean, it really is <laughs> no. 
$3 of parts. They can be. They can be complicated and elegant, and you can dip them in plastic or uh, what's the stuff that you dip them in? Like, like plasticized rubber or rubberized plastic or whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, and make it a finished product that might survive a show. Uh, which I never even bothered. Um, I would have them with the wires hanging out and, and maybe some electrical tape covering the contacts that I had soldered. So, and they break all the time and they're fragile. And um, but um, but certainly you can make them nicer, and you can do pre- use preamps with them and make them sound a little bit better. But in the end, they usually sound kind of like crap. They sound like a contact mic. They record things that you wouldn't hear otherwise. It's in a frequency spectrum that you're not that familiar with. They sound kind of wonderful and like crap. You don't use them for high fidelity. You use them to pick up sounds that you don't usually hear. At least that's what I would use them for. I mean, you're not going to put one on your throat and record this uh, interview, right? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Right. Although could could sound good. Well, fast forward to many years later, you know, I, I actually make contact microphones I say I'd be part for a living now. It's one of the things I, I do on a very regular basis. So that's your webpage back then has led to where I'm at now in life, like very directly in a funny way. So thank you for that. Ah, it's <laughs> awesome. I'm so happy about that, actually. Yeah. And I, and I try to make them nice. You know, I want them to last. They're, going, they're, they're products. The ones I made myself from like your instructions were pieces of garbage and I taped them to rusty metal and threw them around my basement and they exactly. broke every third day. And I try to make ones that, that will stand the test of time and a, a little more abuse than those. But I've certainly done my fair share of just like raw piazzo soldered to gray Radio Shack speaker wire with uh, the cheapest plug you can buy. And did you get a lot of feedback from the, the how to make a contact mic thing when you were posting it? So you, you said people were kind of seeking that information out. They Well, they were seeking it. And then some snooty people were saying, oh, no, 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 you know, or sending them down rabbit holes. And it was really strange. Um, I I didn't really, I don't remember getting a lot of feedback, but I did. I I got the ultimate compliment. Actually, the ultimate compliment is that you saw my page and actually make good ones now uh, and and (laughs) have advanced the art, right? That's that's fantastic. Um, But the second ultimate compliment was when um, uh, Wired Magazine put up a DIY contact microphone page and they copied my page. They retook what? the photos. The photos are nearly identical, but slightly nicer. Uh, and, and at the very bottom, they credited my page. And I, I thought, well, you know, if imitation is the, the ultimate flattery, well, all right. Uh, they, they, uh, it, I wouldn't call it plagiarism, except that it was, except that they credited me. But uh, right, right. Wow, <laughs> strange, a strange version of plagiarism. I went digging for that and couldn't find it. There, there are a bunch of things uh, like, like I emailed you earlier uh, that I uh, was trying to remember and trying to dig up on the web and on the Wayback Machine, and I uh, couldn't find that. That's just a little too old. It may not exist on the internet anymore, which well, is kind of sad. But that we did find on the Wayback Machine this week, Tara myself, is a website that you ran in search of dark matter. Yeah, that, that was oh, your site, correct? The dark atmospheric content. Yes. That was your site, correct? Yes. And it was it's a it's a chock full of reviews, not just from you, from friend and former guest of the podcast, Howie Stelzer. As well as some other people whose names I may not have immediately recognized, or maybe there was a pseudonym. I'm mm-hmm. not 100% sure. When did you start doing that site, and how long did you do it for? Uh, that, so, first of all, you have to send me that link because I went looking <laughs> oh, yeah. for that. And and I just couldn't find it. I, I looked. Oh, I looked all over the place. Yeah, and no, I, we have I, it. It's literally oh. on my phone right now. So we, you will we have went it after this episode. We it A to Z. Yeah, we it were was, checking it, was a it out. Great read. Yeah, I mentioned it to my wife at lunch, and and she said, "Well, you know, could you call? Would Scott Townsend know where it is, or could you call someone?" And I said, "Nah, it doesn't matter all that much." And I said, "But I'd like to see it again." So, um. Uh, that that's really fun ancient history because in graduate school, so I went from ninety one to ninety six. I was in graduate school in Long Island in New on York. Long Island. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, I went to Stony Brook, SUNY Stony Brook, in physics. Um, and um, you know, being a physicist, we had access to the VAX, and VAX had email, and the World Wide Web was 
barely beginning at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And it hadn't begun when I started that. Um, so there were there were a lot of um, mail order catalogs. There were some zines back at the time, right? And so you would get your hands on whatever you could possibly get your hands on to find out about this music, right? Uh, and um, and what I was finding is that um, I wasn't it wasn't current enough, right? You'd you'd eventually get a catalog, you'd look at it, and I guess I was buying enough that new stuff was coming out and I had no idea what it sounded like. And then I'd buy some and I'd love it and I'd buy other stuff and I wouldn't love it. Uh, and this is grad school in the nineties. Um, I was, I think I made $7 an hour, which was a heck of a lot more than my wife made in grad school at the same time. Um, and buying, uh, I I found the Tesco, um, catalog that has my disc in it. $28 in in 1998. Wow. That's insane. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you're making $7 an hour, that, that matters a lot to you. Uh, and, and so I wanted to find out about music. I wanted to find out as it was coming out and you can't, if you're waiting for catalogs, print catalogs to show up in the mail, remain very current. And so I don't remember how I got started exactly. It must've been one of one of the Usenet news groups, right? Because what else was there at the time? There wasn't, I wasn't using the web. There was no web. Um, I started an email list where I wrote some reviews and I really tried to get other people to write reviews and then they'd send them to me and then we would share it and we'd just keep cycling it through. And then eventually um, uh, we, um, and I would just do it monthly or weekly or whenever I had a batch. Um, I'd buy a stack of discs, I'd listen to them, I'd write them up. And they weren't meant to be, you know, grandiose reviews. I'm not really, I'm, I'm not a writer. Uh, you can probably tell when you read some of those. But they were meant to give people an idea of what was out and what it sounded like. And so it was just kind of a, um, it was a, a very, very early electronic network of people that were interested in something. Um, and so eventually it did end up on the web. I didn't have any access to a host at the time. AOL hadn't come out. <laughs> yeah, this AOL. is the dawn wow. of yeah. the internet. This it is really the dawn. The web. Uh, it wasn't even wide yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Scott Townsend was in, um, uh, he was at Caltech. And uh, actually, I, I think I met online. I don't remember how I met her, but um, Heather Rose Busby. And she was, uh, I think she had some gothic web pages or something like that. Um, and I reached out to her and said, can you host these? You know, I'll send them to you. I'll format them. I'll do all the HTML myself. I'll even cut and paste backgrounds. And they look horrible these days. I mean, they're all tiled like that early, you know, <laughs> MySpace looking garbage. It's, it's pr- pretty, uh, pretty rudimentary. And she hosted it for a while and, and we added to it and we kept it going. But um, it was really just kind of the earliest, um, one of the very early um, examples of people networking that were that revolved around common interest, you know, dark music uh, and all all kinds of dark music. It wasn't wasn't really exclusively uh, industrial or gothic or anything like that. It, it was more just the obscure stuff that you wouldn't hear about anywhere. No, it's alternative press wasn't writing anything about it. We've we kind of jumped right in, and just for anyone listening, you know, the the main CD that is the focus of why we're talking to you today is your CD Manhattan dwelling on Tesco's Tesco 36. So a very early Tesco CD. And one of the interesting things about it, something we always find interesting with looking back on labels is these one-offs that, okay, this project has a CD on Tesco back in the nineties. There's no other CDs on Tesco. There's one other self-release thing. And as far as just a cursory look, it seems this came out of nowhere. And, and it's awesome. And it's amazing. And then, and then it, it disappeared. just disappeared. <laughs> and so that's something that always fascinates us looking back on history and looking back on labels, those, those outliers on a label. And the Manhattan Dwelling CD is fitting for what we're talking about. We, we generally... Last year and this year so far, I've been talking about a lot of field recording stuff around February, just sort of it happened last year and it's happening this year. And the Manhattan Dwelling CD is 
a compositional CD made up of field recordings. So again, in my mind, looking back on everything, another outlier on the Tesco label. So let's take a little walk into how the CD came to be. So what, oh, you said around 90, early 90s is when you started doing the email list, the In Search of Dark Matter, correct? Yep. Yep. And a radio show that was and really- And a radio show. Yeah. So, the, what, so give us leading up to the point where you're doing a radio show, playing strange, dark, experimental sounds. You're, you're putting out an email list, reviewing these things in the early 90s. Give us the lead up. How did you get to that point in your path of- music listening and music making. Actually, that that's pretty, pretty straightforward. So, you know, I listened to a lot of electronic music in the 80s or early 80s, right? As a kid, um, absolutely loved all, all, all things, all things electronic, new wave, fantastic. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And the early, early gothic, right? I mean, I always called the cure new wave, but no, no, their early albums are quite gothic, right? Oh, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, quite. Um, and uh, I listened to all that. Um, I think that um, that actually it's kind of fun. I, I think that Skinny Puppy. Um, oh, I was going to look up the song um, on on Rabies towards the Warlock. end of the album. Warlock. A, what's that? Oh there's, well, Warlock. Warlock. Oh my God, with the vocoding, <laughs> one of the greatest oh, songs ever. Ever. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, and and a huge Skinny Puppy fan. I, I saw yeah. their Two Dark Park tour at the at the. Um, at the Gothic in Denver, I was in Colorado in high school wow. and college. You wow. just got three people very wow, jealous. jealous. <laughs> and, and that was the show that they recorded. Um, uh, let's see, on the spasmolytic single, there's a um, Hearthstone White live at the Gothic oh. in Denver. That show wow. I went to, oh, <laughs> best wow. thing ever, right? Um, so Rabies, Rabies had a song on it that... Um, that <sighs> Is it Punkin Parks? No, it's not Punkin Parks, but it's next to that one. Anyway, okay. it's just it's just rhythmic white noise, and it kind of blew my mind. I'm like listening to the, listening to it, saying, "Wait, um, uh, there's more." It's actually these days I listen to it, and it's catchy. Um, at the time, <laughs> it, it was like, "Whoa, <laughs> you can make something with noise like that? That's extraordinary!" And I just started digging into what what else is out there, right? Um, you know, uh, Frontline Assembly, um, I found Delirium and I was the early Delirium. And I'm like, oh, my God, this stuff is fantastic. Uh, and w- once you find Delirium and you realize that it's out there and you realize that you've never heard of it and you never w- would have if someone hadn't pointed you at it, then then you get um, like music from the empty quarter, I think it was. Did you ever see that zine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I have a couple of here. And so music from the empty quarter, I think I've got one of those. Um, uh, and and I, I was like, wait, what are all these other bands? And, and you just go down the rabbit hole and you find more and more and more. And then finally you find something like Cult Meat Industry or, um, you know, Tesco. And you just keep going with it. And um, especially when you're doing a radio show and um, and you are really excited about it. I bought so many discs. I didn't eat. <laughs> I just bought discs yeah. I was same, buying same. constantly yeah. and just putting it out there. And there's nothing more fun than playing Meritspo in two o'clock in the afternoon on Long Island, you know, and, and people calling in, Whoa, what is this? This is terrible. Oh, I was going to ask like, what yes. your time slot was. Yeah. It started out overnight and it was miserable. Yep. And mm-hmm. I managed to get kind of sick because I was up all the time. Uh, and then eventually um, they put me in an afternoon slot and I could, I could play in slaughter natives in the middle of the afternoon and people wow. would be calling in. What is this? This is satanic. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> uh, and I've always, um, and my wife will attest to this. Um, I've always had just a uh, I don't know, the, the sense of humor of an eight year old. I like to poke at people. Right. Um, probably an early internet troll, right? Oh, I just, I couldn't resist just, just poking, you know, having fun. It wasn't, I wasn't really the angry troll that was just spewing hostility and all that stuff, but I would love to just put something out there that would get a rise. And so playing something really weird and dark and disturbing in the middle of the afternoon uh, on the radio was so gratifying to me. Just loved it. Uh, and, and so I was consuming a lot of music. I was listening to a lot of music. I was reading a lot about music and I 
formed. Um, and I've always, uh, I played um, string bass in high school, actually elementary school through high school. So I'd been slightly musical. I started to form opinions. I was writing my opinions and I'm an opinionated kind of guy. And I, I had decided that, oh, you know, maybe I should try making this stuff because I know what I want to hear. And some of this is close and some of this doesn't work for me. And I don't know why, but if I start writing my own stuff, I'll better understand why I like something and what it is that I want to hear. Uh, and so I started writing music um, on my computer um, and doing field recordings. And it's funny, I uh, I dug up um, the Manhattan Dwelling. It, it I love the fact that you've been so kind. You haven't called me a one hit wonder yet. And I appreciate that. <laughs> no, not at all. But but um, as a one off, right, uh, it, it is a one off. Um, and, and I'll get to why, where I've been and why that is. But that one album I, I sent to The Wire, right? And I've got that. I've actually got the copy here. And of course, nobody can see it, but I'll hold it up. Uh, and it's got Nick Cave on the front. And it's a Excellent. 1999 Wire magazine, right? The Wire, not Wire magazine and not Wired with a D, but yeah. The Wire. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and I, I sent them a copy and they actually reviewed it and the review, um, and I should read it to you, but I'd have to put my glasses on, but it, it was not really complimentary, but it, um, actually I should read it to you. If you, if you guys we have a time. second, yeah, 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 this sounds great. No, I don't think I've ever received a kind word in the wire. So we, I would yes. love to hear someone else as well. Everyone can commiserate. Yeah. We can all, everyone who's listening. And I know there's some out there who have not received a kind word in the wire. We can all sit and commiserate together. <laughs> yeah, but remember, no no press is bad press, right? There you go, of course. And so when I read this, I, I was confused in it initially, and then I'm like, wait, no, I think it's bad, or is it good? I, I can't tell. Uh, and, and so, okay, New York resident Gerald Stevens takes source recordings from his surroundings in Manhattan and Long Island, and then hacks them up and stretches them out into stifling, gloomy music concrete. Uh, it's like listening to the city from underneath a drainage grating. Or inside a ventilation shaft, everything is uh, washed out by cacophonous reverberation or distorted into clouds of unadulterated din. Occasionally, there's some respite, but if this were the sound of the city I had lived in, I'd move out fast. That's a great I, really, yeah, I, I thought you said they didn't say anything good. nice. I so, thought that was pretty good. I would want to hear that. So I, so I sent, I sent the guy a note. Uh, I should have read the name of the guy, but no, we'll, we'll just leave that, uh, we'll yeah, leave yeah, that yeah. unmentioned. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about anyone, but I sent him a note and I said, Hey, thank you for reviewing it. I can't believe it actually made it into the magazine with Nick Cave on the cover. Right. I mean, that's kind of huge. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't just doesn't happen with a genre this obscure. And he's like, yeah, well, sorry, I didn't like it. And I said, you know what? What you wrote will sell copies. <laughs> yes. I, I, to me, it sounded like an absolutely positive review. That's I feel we've said all those similar things about many things in a positive way. So yeah, it, yeah, you know we're what? Like, this that's guy. That's amazing. It's like recording Manhattan from a sewer drain. It's we're like beautifully I obscured. That. Yeah, I want to hear that. So much atmosphere and darkness. Yeah. Wonderful. Please yeah. sign me up. <laughs> Every yeah, exactly. It's it's like um yeah no to the right person that sounds fantastic. Into the rest of the world, they'd say, "Oh, I'll never listen to that. That sounds terrible." <laughs> um, it's. I found it hilarious that he said, "Oh, you know, it's drenched in reverb and distortion." I didn't. I didn't have a distortion pedal, and I didn't put any reverb on it. And what? <laughs> no, so, so it's like, well, okay, I guess. But what? What he? What he was hearing is the distortion and reverb of, of New York City of actually mm -hmm. actual recording of it. Yeah. Yeah, like um, uh, there's there's a song on the album called "Waiting," and it was the waiting room for the Long Island Railroad, and oh, wow. I sat there for hours, and it was driving me crazy. I mean, I was just bored out of my mind. And there's just this kind of din of reverb, and it's you know it's got the hard stone floors and the walls and all that, so it's just heavy reverb. There's there's waiting room music playing. Yeah, and it's just. You know, initially you don't really notice it, and then eventually it just kind of starts to grate on you. Uh, and so I did that with the track. I, you know, I had it build and just get louder and just layered on top of itself until it's really bad. And then I did 
I, I um, at the at the behest of um, Joachim, he said, well, you know, I like this song, but it kind of builds and then it fades out. And he said, I'd like it if it built and went somewhere else. And I said, okay, I can do that. Uh, and I had bought a distortion pedal and a couple other effects processors and I went full up noise with the end of it uh, and just made it uh, hellish loud noise. Yes. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, that, that worked out quite well. It's also funny in hindsight. I mean, I, I look at, the, I look at the review and I know what I was doing technologically and what I was doing is I wanted to explore making music, but I had no money. Uh, and so my parents bought me a computer so that I could write my thesis, right? I didn't have enough to buy a computer and I got a Pentium 90, uh, and it was, it was actually, um, it was the one with the, uh, floating point error on the chip and they, they sent me a new processor and, and I had to swap it out. It's like a famous moment in computer history. Like, mm-hmm. anyway, if you don't remember it, good for you. Uh, but anyway, so I had this, <laughs> this, this, um, computer with a sound blaster, right? Oh yeah. But I did know that I wanted to make music. And so I bought the AWE 32, And it was the first consumer grade sampling synthesizer that you could put in a computer. I mean, it's a, it's a card that you're really just supposed to play games with. Uh, and, but it was more than that. Uh, you could put memory on it. The memory was very expensive. I think you could put 32 megabytes on it. Uh, and, and I did that and now I had a sampling keyboard and, and it was extraordinary. I mean, so, but I needed samples. Uh, and you really couldn't buy things. I did. I bought, um, they had a, a three and a half inch floppy. Um, they called them sound fonts. And it's basically just a sample library, right? And and it, it was called Haunt Fonts uh, and it and made by Creative Labs or whatever. And, and it had like, oh, here's a chain hanging and all these silly little noises. And I think I used one of them. It was a pipe hit and I used it in... Uh, in Basement? Uh, Possibly. No, wasn't, no, Feels like right. there's some pipe hits, but maybe that's just literally the basement mm-hmm. uh, that you were oh, recording. Oh, basement, there are pipe hits, but... Um, oh, they, but no, they're yeah, actual but, pipe yeah. hits. No, let's see. It would have been... I think it was Morning Doves. It's, gotcha. it's at the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yep, there's some clanking and, and there's the noise mm-hmm. out, out in the yard. and Yeah. Uh, yep. And so so I had, I had the basic... Um, basic equipment to do something. The other thing that it, that came along while I was writing my thesis and writing this music was the ability to write a CDR, which was extraordinary, right? Um, I had been recording things on cassette, but at some point I, I realized, oh, I don't, I mean, I don't need to have someone master this music. I can burn it directly to a disc and send it and, and it's cleaner and it's better and it's brand new technology. And again, you know, I bought the first CD CDR burning um, system from Philips, I think. And they were, they had a class action lawsuit against it because it basically every fifth disc would work and the rest were bad burns. <laughs> but, but still I, I love technology. I love where it's gone. And I love the, the, you know, the egalitarian aspect that anyone can do this and anyone can do it in their basement. And I didn't need to buy a four track. I didn't need to buy an ADAT, right? Who could afford an ADAT? Um, I corresponded a little bit with John Waterman at the time. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. oh man, Calcutta gas chamber. One, oh, of, the, one of the greatest. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it, and you listen to it and it's pristine and clear. And I asked him, what, what did you record it on? And he said, oh, it's the Sony blah, 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 DAT system. It was like $4,000 for that thing. Wow. And he had borrowed it. Yeah, right. In the 90s. He had, I think he had borrowed it. I don't think he owned it, but but still it was like unobtainium. So what did I do? I had a I had an AWA cassette recorder, right? With with a lapel microphone. And I put it on my jacket and I went around Manhattan recording stuff. And I rode the train from Long Island. I recorded around my house. And I did all my field recordings with a with a with just a cassette recorder. And oh, so, wow. And, and, and just a little lapel mic? And a lapel mic. And wow. it was the Effective. one that came with it. And, and right. you know, it was stereo, which was quite cool, right? An actual stereo lapel mic. Um, but uh so the fact that he's the the review said, oh, it's you know, I mean, it sounds pretty lo-fi from his description. A lot of reverb, it's murky, it's there's a din. Yeah, well, look at what I was using. And I find it extremely comical that 
that pe- if I had that stupid little recorder still, it's heavily sought after. There's oh, an yeah. entire mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are droves of people on the web that are recording to these things intentionally because they sound like crap. <laughs> it's you're, we've come you're ahead full of the circle. Game. So, how did this go from you making a couple tapes and doing a radio show to a CD on Tesco at a, at a you know a time when I think te- Tesco is certainly known, but not not even I think as big as they are now, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, so, um, at the same time that I was doing the reviews, um, I had reached out and bought CDs from a number of different labels and started, I became a pen pal with them, not a pen pal. I I started emailing with a number of different record labels, Darren Verhagen and Dorbo, right? Do you know that Shinjuku thief? Uh, Yeah, I know know Verhagen stuff. I see Darren Verhagen is in the thanks list of uh, Manhattan dwelling. So is Mark Spivey of dead voices on air. Uh, A couple, you know, Jason Mantis, of course, of malignant records. Uh, So a few, a few names I recognize. Vince Harrigan from manifold, I think. So manifold, I had corresponded with him and, and I had been making cassettes and I kept adding tracks to them and I would give them to my friends and, and that was fine. Um, and so, um, and in fact, I, I guess I should say that I, um, I finally released this two years after I grad, I finished grad school. Uh, and I, um, uh, that's, uh, that's when the CDR came out and I was able to actually send it out properly before that I was sending cassettes out. So I, I sent cassettes to people. I sent CDs to people. I asked for input. These were, these were friends of mine that I'd been talking to a lot. Um, back and forth all the time. Uh, and I'd say, you know, what do you think? And and what do you like about it? And try to get some just constructive critis- criticism out of it. And then eventually when I had enough tracks put together and it was really, it was just, I just kind of sequentially kept stacking them up. That's why Manhattan dwelling, half of it was in Manhattan. Half of it was around the house on Long Island. Um, the, and it, uh, and it kind of worked together. So I, I put it out as, as one album, but that's why it's Manhattan slash dwelling. It's really kind of two albums together. Um, I just, uh, so I, I asked people where I would send it. And I think it was probably Jason Mantis said, here's a list of places I would send it. And I sent it to Tesco and, and Manifold. And I didn't send it many other places. And Manifold said, I, you know, I'm in the middle of releasing stuff, but I am interested can, you know, and may, maybe get in touch in a couple months. Um, and then Tesco said, yeah, we'd like to release this. They said, that it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was different than what it, they were releasing at the time. Um, it's more, it's definitely just more dark, ambient, atmospheric, less aggressive. Certainly, uh, you know, it's not, not really a genocide organ type album. Um, but uh, they were interested in releasing it. And um, then we worked up the the artwork. Um, that was all me and Corel Draw or something like that. Uh, <laughs> kind of obviously these days. Um, and um, did some back and forth about um, he wanted to do a, a large pressing. And I was like, you're crazy. Why would, why would you do a large pressing of this? But okay, go ahead. <laughs> Um, and he, uh, what did I get out of it? I, I got a pile that I could sell myself. Um, there was no real payment for it. We didn't copyright. I asked him about that. Do you copyright? And he, no. Well, why would we bother with that? I'm like, all right, good. <laughs> why bother? Uh, and then, you know, that we put it together. Um, the, the special edition part, the 50 copies with the, with the subway token on them. Um, I, I just bought them myself. I actually, I reached out, this was kind of fun. I, I tried to do things properly, which I don't think Tesco would necessarily encourage, um, with regards to the artwork that I used and getting the subway tokens. And so I, I reached out to the, the New York transit authority and said, can I get some old vintage, um, subway tokens with a cutout Y's on them? And they said, oh yeah, well, okay. And if you want to use an image of that, um, yeah, so we're here are here are the prices, right? And uh, how many do you think you're going to be selling of this? How much money do you think? And they were asking for thousands of dollars so that I wow. could use an image of the subway token. So I did what I thought I should do and I 
twirled it on the CD and, and distorted it and digitally modified it enough that I figured maybe it would stand up in court. I also realized no one from the transit authority would ever see it, right? I mean, how would they ever get a copy? But I was trying to do the right thing. Um, and I, and then I just bought, um, I, I found a guy, I asked them how much to buy them. And they were like, oh, you know, and they were going to charge me so much money. I said, you don't understand. I'm only losing money on this thing. It's, I, I you know, I'll, I'll get a, a hundred copies or maybe I got 75. Um, I'll sell them and I've lost some money. And so why, why do you think this is a moneymaker and you should be asking me for $5,000? This is a little odd. So I just bought some from somebody off of eBay and put them on myself and didn't spend that much on it. Um, the artwork, th this part's fun. The, um, the images around Manhattan, um, it's Bernice Abbott or Berenice Abbott. It's got an X-ray unit. Uh, and she was just a fantastic photographer that just took very austere, simple photographs of Manhattan back in a uh, long time ago. Um, actually, I should know that, but um, 20s and 30s, maybe a long time ago. Um, and uh, I reached out um, to whoever was in charge of her estate and they they gave me the go ahead to use copies from a book of, of hers that I bought. And they said, yeah, that'd be great. And they said, Hey, maybe you can send us a disc and, and you know, when you're done with it. And I, and I did, and I was like, now this is, this is reasonable. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was, it was, it was really nice that they, uh, they gave me the go ahead. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's kind of how, how it came together. Um, I told this story to, um, people that I met when I started doing shows and they'd say, oh, my God, you're on Tesco. How did that? That's impossible. I, I've sent things. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it just happened. Um, I sent them a disc and it happened. Um, and I do understand, I mean, the misery of sending out your work and getting it rejected over and over. Um, uh, I mean, uh, it didn't happen with this. Uh, but at the same time, I, uh, I don't know why it didn't happen. And, and I'm, I'm super sympathetic. Um, and surprisingly, and here's the weird part. I don't remember the sequence of events, but, um, I do know that I talked to Scott Townsend about this. Um, when I, when I signed up with Tesco, I was corresponding with Joachim Cole, I think. Right. And, um, and I don't remember whether Scott had reached out to, to them or I told him to reach out to them. Uh, so if I get it backwards, maybe he'll tell me, but, um, he, um, uh, he sent them a disc and they were interested, you know, and, and it just happened for a cruelty campaign. Right. Yeah. So, so I think, um, oh, okay. So why I'm, why I am sympathetic is because I did, um, so after it came out, I moved to Colorado and I did a postdoc at CSU in Fort Collins. And I met one of the local guys that was into noise. Um, and that was James Grell of crowd control activities, um, and James, uh, I mean, what, what, what are, what's the likelihood a small Colorado town and two noise heads. Right. Um, and he would get demo cassettes all the time, right. For crowd control all the mm -hmm. time. And he would, ha he'd give them to me to listen to. And I'd be like, well, yeah, no. Uh, and then what do you do? Do you constantly kindly respond to everyone? I mean, you just get inundated with these things. And it's really frustrating from the label's perspective, and it's super painful from the artist's perspective. So, so I like I'm I'm thrilled with the the digital and um, I mean I don't know whether or not you make any money off of it. I kind of doubt you do, but um, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, Bandcamp, right? Yeah. If you can put your music out there, you don't need a label. Is someone is someone going to find it? Probably. If you attach yourself to a label and you're on Bandcamp, you probably get better exposure, right? But yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. but it's just not necessary now to send your album to a, a large label and ask them to press it to get exposure. And that's that's fantastic. That, uh, that means that there are a lot more interesting bands out there that are accessible to all of us. Um, and, and I really like that. You had mentioned earlier that when you had sent the CD into Joachim, at least in one track, particularly that he had a bit of 
suggestion or advice on the track. Was this something that you had asked for or was it something that he provided in general? Because I, I personally enjoy working with labels and people back. I like the back and forth. I like when I submit something to somebody and they give me a back and forth or vice versa. I do enjoy that. It's not the way everyone works. Was that something that you had suggested or was it something he automatically was giving you some suggestions? He, so, so I had sent him, you know, a, a lot of music and he said, okay, um, I want to keep it shorter than, uh, I think I had maxed out the CD. Um, and so he said, let's, let's make it a little bit shorter. I think this track is too long, so let's drop this one. And then he mentioned this other track, um, that it built and then it, and, and it literally just built and then it decayed the same way that it built the way that I had structured it. And I kind of liked it, uh, because it, it had kind of a geometry to it. And in fact, if you were looking at the cakewalk screen, you would see the geometry immediately. Um, but I, he gave me some feedback and I said, okay, you know, it was, it was fun. It was like, um, uh, he challenged me to do something else with it while not just wiping it clean or deleting it saying that one's terrible. Uh, and I really like where it ended up. So, so that was really good. Um, I don't remember any other criticism. Um, I, I definitely did talk to him a lot since I, provided him with the digital copies on a CD, which was kind of rare at the time. Um, there wasn't a mastering session, right? Nobody mastered my CD. Um, and, and normally, normally, and in fact, when I met James Grill in Colorado, um, he actually had me do mastering for him because I said I could, um, again, I had no gear. I had a crappy turntable and I actually recorded records, uh, a couple of things. He, uh, he had a punk album by Pissed Happy Children, um, and uh, it was only on vinyl, and they didn't have the originals. And so I recorded from the vinyl, and then I removed the pops in some of the hiss, and uh, and so I did some mastering for him. Uh, and so anyway, um, uh, yeah, it's it's it is rare. Um, but the nice thing is when you when you self master is you don't have problems. James had actually um, it was an Ali D album that he was going to release and it's a fantastic album, but he gave it to another friend of his that actually had some gear and his other friend ran it through a finalizer, which does some compression. And Stefano Musso was not too happy about that. <laughs> uh, so, so you lose control when you send it off to have it mastered to some degree. Uh, a lot of people swear by it. I mean, uh, I, I read, um, I read posts all the time. Um, Nathan Moody, who lives up in San Francisco and does a lot of mastering of electronic music and dark electronic music. Um, lots of people send him their work and they say, oh my God, it just, it sounds totally different. It's fantastic. Um, so I, I definitely see the value in it and having someone else listen to it or give you feedback is absolutely essential. The other thing that's absolutely essential is listening to it on crappy speakers and in your car. Um, oh, don't, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Don't use your, your, your nice headphones only. You want to hear how it sounds in other environments. And that's a nice, another nice thing about a CD is you just pop it in wherever you're, you want to and say, oh, how's it sound here? Um, and so, so yeah, um, that's kind of how it went with, with releasing Manhattan Dwelling. Um, it was fairly quick, surprisingly quick. Um, the time frame was short but from the time that he said, let's do it, it was only a couple months before it was done uh, and it was out. And, um, and at the time, um, I don't remember how this happened exactly, but this would have been, uh, before 99. So probably 97, 98. Um, I had met some other people down in Denver and did a couple of shows down there. Uh, and I actually had discs to hand out and had enough of a name that people asked me to do shows. So, so I did start doing some, um, some actual live performances. I've only done a handful. Um, I think it's on that, that website that I dredged up from the past and then what's it have, uh, five, five shows. So mm -hmm. I, I did, um, in Denver, I did the night of noise, uh, with black cell threshold and death pile. Um, I did the atonal festival, uh, death squad was there. Really nice guy. Michael nine, right? Yeah. Uh, surprisingly mm -hmm. nice guy. 
especially someone who will point a gun at you in a, in a show, um, <laughs> really nice guy. Uh, uh, then let's see. Um, also did another night of noise the next year, uh, with death pile again. Uh, and he got dropped dead to do guest vocals, dropped dead. It's a punk band. It was, it was really kind of fantastic. So James Grell was really good friends with Jonathan. Jonathan Kennedy. Yeah. 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 we we, yeah, we all, we love Jonathan. Yeah. Love him. And, uh, and then I moved to California and I managed to do a couple shows, one of which was lined up by David Kotner. Uh, and it was kind of a nightmare show because it was meant to be, um, how many bands, like 10 bands, five minutes each, one hour. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't, I don't mind doing five minutes and, and getting up and doing that, but it was with cock ESP and laundry room squelchers and, oh, yeah. uh, and a couple other people at the fold. Um, and, uh, it should have been fun, but, um, the lead singer from the laundry room squelchers was, um, uh, he was drunk and he's kind of a, he, he was throwing bottles against the, the bar, uh, and he, he threw my gear across the stage and it's actually, this was one of the moments that led to me walking away from Erinese actually. Um, I did all these shows and, and I put a lot of time and effort into them and I met some great people at every show and I traded discs. Um, at one of these, I, I met, um, MSBR and government alpha and oh, traded wow. with them. Right. Right. And, uh, and so there was all kinds of upside, um, uh, and then, the, yeah, the final show that I did, um, Scott Townsend arranged. Um, and so it was Cruelty Campaign and me and then a couple other bands at The Smell, right? I played at The Smell. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Right? Legendary. Right? You know, you've made it when you, well, not really. But, um, <laughs> and and so so um, I, I would make new material. I would get new gear. I, I would go out. I mean, and then I'd drive down to L.A. and find parking and all that. I'd get a pitcher of beer in payment if I was lucky, right? And possibly have a bunch of my gear broken by an angry guy on stage, which also happened. And and I was just like, wait, you know, the 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 risk to reward or the the it, it, it's just it's exhausting, and and I wasn't really feeling that it was it was worth it in the end. Um, and and I don't, I mean, you guys, you you have experience. Um, doing live shows and, oh, yeah, and a little bit, yeah, 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 a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, we've all gone to live shows, but so what is it? What is it that keeps you doing it? Because I decided that I wasn't really cut out to be a, a noise musician. I didn't. I'm not a rock star. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna break bottles against the, the wall and then try to get in a fight. And, and and I'm not swaggery on stage and all this stuff. And I, maybe I'm too much of an introvert. I have different views on them than I did when I was 20 and when I was 30 and moving forward into the future, I'm much less enthusiastic about the live show in general, but that doesn't mean that I think there can be very special shows that can happen, but sometimes you can't plan for those and they just happen a lot of times, shows that end up being memorable and special there's so many factors that go into them. These days I'm much less inclined to attempt to play a show, but that's also coming off decades of touring and touring and touring. So I've certainly <laughs> put, put the time in. But we also deal with, let's say less precious gear. Uh, so basically I don't bring anything to a show that I don't mind having destroyed. The last show we, Tara and I played, we, it literally was, we, well, if everything breaks, that's fine. We have nothing else booked after this. So we yeah. it, luckily mostly, Oh, I mean, your stuff that you, well, you I broke made it, it to destroy, yeah. like, like I specifically made gear just so I could just destroy it. So I think that having, the lowest possible expectations. Like there are those times I, I, just in general, there are those so times, I say like life. after certain shows, you're like, I'm doing the cost benefits analysis over and over. And then it raises and it lowers and you're, you know, you have those, why am I doing this moments? But then you have these things that are just totally kinetic and magical. And, and, you know, you, you vibe with everybody uh, that is there and, and you just feel like elevated, like, yes, we can, we can do this. It can happen, but they're far and few yeah. in between, but Curating what, is important. What were you <laughs> playing live? Yeah. What type of gear and what were those sets like sonically? 
Yeah. So, so I, um, it varied every time I tried to do something new, I had seen enough shows and laptopism was coming out and it was a thing at the time that I realized that when you see a live show that you need to see cause and effect you, and, and I mm-hmm. developed my theory of the big knob, you want someone to have a big knob on stage that when they turn it, it blows your mind and you see it turn and you know that they're doing something right. And so Someone standing behind a laptop that you can't tell if they're playing Tetris or not, that's probably not going to be a memorable show where somebody, yeah, when uh, um, Soul Mania, when they, when they start beating their pedals with guitars, you know, yes. that's going to be a memorable show. Um, you need some physicality. You need something, something memorable and all that. So I, um, I, would, I, I made some chicken wire sculptures with contact mics all over them for a show. Um, my favorite thing that I did was at the, um, I think it was actually at, at the smell. Um, uh, I filled a little plastic cage from the, from the pet store with crickets, with about 150 crickets. And I put contact mics underneath them. Uh, and, and so, and I've, I've got, a, I, um, that's actually in a track that I'll, uh, one, one of the other things that I did briefly, I'll, I'll mention it in a minute. Um, I, I ended up using that recording. I, I did a little quick field recording of it and then I used it in, in my studio later. But, um, and that, I mean, uh, they sound wonderful. You hear all oh, this sickening, the little f- legs and the chirping and, ah, oh, it's just so great. Oh, their little bodies. I bet that sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah. And yeah. squirming it. And it's sitting there and the audience is staring at it going, holy crap, that's really awful and awesome at the same time. Uh, and, and so I did that and they may or may not have been set free outside of the uh, dumpster behind the smell. And I'm sorry to the smell for that, but I was young and stupid. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the smells had much worse happen. Yeah, so yeah, I, think, nice. I think it's all good. <laughs> Those are charming. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also moved since then, I'm sure. So, um, uh, and then, um, you know, I, uh, again, with the big knobs at some point I got a, actually for one of those shows, I had a chaos pad and it was new and, and expensive to me. And it's something that actually, you know, that you could, you could do very large changes to the sound that were obvious to the audience with. And I like that about that. Um, I would use, my mini disc with some, some sounds recorded. And then I would use a bunch of pedals and feedback and everything else. And so my performance, live performances were much more noise than they were than like Manhattan dwelling, no real quiet moments. One of the Denver atonal festivals, I, I did my set, you know, I'm, I'm into it. It's, uh, um, I had no idea. Uh, you know, I just got into it, did my whole set. I looked up and the room was empty. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy that was running the mixing desk didn't bother setting the levels. So people are like, oh, it was really loud, man. Uh, and and a drunk asshole decided that he wanted to first break a bottle against his head and then pick a fight with anyone who would fight him. So they all, everyone went out into the, into the yard to watch the drunk asshole fight someone. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, one, dude. Why don't you turn me down? I can't tell if it's too loud up here. Are you doing anything back there? And two, well, uh, I mean, that was a, a waste. Um, one, the other thing that I found, and and it's funny because I look at this list and the best part, it's always the best part. All of these people that I played with, I got to meet. I mean, yes. right? Meeting the other artists is fantastic. I yes. want to meet these people. But in general, you can meet them if you go to the show. Not just if you're in the show uh, and you don't have to put forth a whole bunch of effort and have your gear broken in the process. <laughs> and and so I'd rather hang out and meet people um, and and the people at the show, you know, I'd give them a disc and, and we'd exchange discs and get to know each other. And it's fantastic. But the people in the audience at the smell, at the fold. They were the regulars that were going to the shows there. They, they had no idea who te- what Tesco was. Right. So people were receptive and interested and they're like, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. But that's not really the audience that I wanted to play for is somebody completely unfamiliar with it. That's a regular that wants to get a beer and see a show. I mean, that's it's cool, but it but these aren't people that I'm going to develop any lasting relationships with. Right. Uh, And so that definitely I decided after after the um, after the smell that I was kind of done. That was in 2000. 
uh, a very brief touring history, right? There's a lot of other music out there that I love, that I wanted to pursue, that I wanted to listen to, that I wanted to make. Um, and I kind of drifted away from it. Um, and so that's where I've been for 20 years, making electronic music, um, but mainly just playing with electronic gear and learning how to build my own modular synthesizer and my own modules and learning to program in pure data and, and learning, I mean, just learning about the technology and reveling in the amazing things and sounds that you can make with it. Have you been um, releasing music since 2000? Is there another project you've, you've been putting stuff out? There was, um, Stigberg and Phil Easter and I had, had been, um, talking about, I, I had a great idea and it's again in lines with, it's me poking at the people that were collecting stuff. Uh, and it's a total dick move and it would have been so fun to do. Um, I, I was going to release, um, so we were, I, we all used the same near field recordings of bull weevils. It was a paper that I found an academic paper where they put special microphones underneath insects and recorded them. And so we all had the same source material. We were all going to do four tracks each. We were going to select one of each, uh, one of each artist, one of the tracks and burn a, a black CDR with three tracks on it. So we would have 64 unique copies, none of which had, was the same as any other one. Uh, and we were going to sell it. I was going to call it, um, old man Fury's black label, Right. And um, and the thought was that that it was a, it was it was a blatant statement to collectors that that no, like that you can't own it all. You can't have all these tracks. And the only way you could have all the tracks is if the community got together and shared the files. Uh, and this was during the Napster era too. So it was, it was a, a weird idea, um, meant to be kind of poking at things. Um, and I wish that it had happened. I made the tracks. They're actually on my SoundCloud. It's, it's the Electo, um, four track EP that's, um, that I can point you at. Um, and they, they also, they were more musical than anything I had done. They were more electronic. They were going in a new direction. And so I decided to go in that direction. Um, I made, um, I changed my name. I haven't done anything under Aranese. Um, the, um, I started calling the stuff that I was burning to a CDR. I can't call it releasing um, logo. And that's named after the Com Commodore 64 programming language that was popular when I was a kid. Um, and so it's, it's just electronic music um it's in the vein of maybe like suction records solvent um it's kind of retro but not entirely uh, much more upbeat um still dark i can't get away from it <laughs> it's in my soul mm -hmm. uh but um so so i did do some with that i'm an early adopter i i do buy more gear than i should i bought the electron machine drum because i, I read a review from uh from Chris Carter in Sound on Sound. And I'm like, look, Chris Carter likes it. I should give this a go. And it was fantastic. So I also bought the mono machine. Um, I was a beta tester on the mono machine. So I, I found lots of bugs in it. And they actually had a preset with my name on it on the first release, first OS for it, which is probably more of a claim to fame than Aaron's is at this point. So... <laughs> But I've, I've just, um, so I think I've drifted more into the, um, do it yourself electronic music community, um, and just had a fun time learning about electronics, how to build my own stuff, um, how to program, um, signal analysis. I'm a physicist, so I do a lot of that at work. Um, and so it's kind of a natural extension. I can have a room full of wires at work and a room full, full of wires at home. And I'm really happy with both. <laughs> so awesome. So that's kind of where I've gone. Uh, I, I, I've spent more time tinkering than I do creating music. Um, and another, another little self-reflection point is that, um, people get really upset. They're like, well, you have all this gear. Wait, why don't you, why aren't you making music with that? Oh, 
don't you don't you buy the gear to make music? I mean, that's why you buy the gear. Well, I mean, don't you feel bad about that? You know, I think I did for a while. In fact, probably a long while. And I think a lot of people do. And they they just need to stop feeling bad about it. <laughs> what do you get? What do you get joy from? Right? I mean, writing some feedback on a on a guitar pedal it can just be a wonderful experience. And if you never record it and never share it with anyone, so what? Right. It's it's it doesn't making music doesn't need to be the end goal of electronic music here. I'm here to say that not many people will say that. (laughs) You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.